We continue our series in the book of Exodus. If you don't have a Bible, words will be on the screen uh, behind me. Also in our church app, you will find a sermon listening guide, and the scripture is printed on the top of that sermon listening guide as well. Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 to 14. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. In his book, The Wounded Healer, Henry Nouwen tells an ancient tale from India. And it's about these four royal brothers who decide that they're going to master a special ability. So they go off and, and, and time passes and they come back together to share uh, what was revealed to them and the special ability that they have. So the first brother said, I can take the bone of a creature and I can put flesh on the bone. And the second brother said, I can take, if there's bone and flesh, I can actually uh, put skin on the creature and put hair on it. And the third brother came along and said, the flesh, the bone, the hair, I can actually add limbs to the creature. And the fourth brother said, I can actually give life to the creature if its form is already in place. So these four brothers went out to the jungle to practice their special abilities, and they found a bone, and it happened to be the bone of a lion. 
So the first brother took the bone and he put flesh on it. The second brother added the hair and the hide to it. And the third brother put the limbs on it. And the fourth brother gave life to this lion. The lion shook its mane and pounced on the brothers and killed them and disappeared into the jungle. In Exodus 32, God's people create, make gods that they hope will rescue them, satisfy them, fulfill them. But those gods only enslave them more and only bring death. And we do the same thing. We create gods. We make gods in hopes that it will, they will satisfy us and fulfill us and rescue us. And we find out that they do just the opposite, that they bring death. The Bible calls this act of making gods, this act of making idols, the Bible calls it idolatry. A lot of questions. What causes idolatry? What exactly is idolatry? And how do we overcome idolatry? So let's look at the first question. What causes idolatry? What what leads you or causes you to turn away from God into something or someone else for satisfaction or fulfillment? Look at verse one. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now, what, what caused God's people to turn away from God and turn to idols? There's two details in this verse. Number one is they say to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. Remember where they're at. They're in the wilderness. God had promised to rescue them after, out of awful slavery in Egypt, which he had done, and to bring them to the promised land. The wilderness was in between. So this was a temporary place. It was a harsh place. It was the desert. And they understood that they needed someone to lead them out of the wilderness, to rescue them out of the wilderness. And because Moses had delayed, they thought Moses had just abandoned them. So they were going to make gods to lead them out. The second detail in this verse we see is that when they saw that Moses had delayed. So you put these two together. This is a people that are in a situation, they're in a circumstance that they don't want to be in. They want out, but they're unwilling to wait. They're unwilling to wait on God to bring them out. Right? The irony of this situation is as they say to Aaron, Aaron, make us gods, they can still see the glory of God on the mountaintop. The fire, the smoke, the presence of God is right there before him. But they didn't trust him. They didn't trust his timing. And so they were going to make gods to do what they wanted to do and to get them out. God had not told them when he was going to lead them out of the wilderness, nor had he told them how long Moses was going to be on top of the mountain. They simply had to trust him, but they were unwilling. They were unwilling to trust his timing. And that's what caused them to turn away and to go make gods. They were wrestling control from God. And you and I do the same. What causes you to turn away from God? 
What causes you to turn to making gods to satisfy you and to fulfill you? We could run to impatience, right? That's, that's what comes out of verse one, impatience. We wanna go somewhere. We wanna get rescued from the situation and we're impatient. We're not trusting God's timing. But when you peel back the impatience at the core of idolatry, the root of idolatry is a lack of trust in God. It's a lack of functional trust in, in God knowing what he's doing and believing that he has your best interests in mind. It's a lack of trusting his timing. So the question for you is, what's not going the way you want it to go in your life right now? What situation, what circumstance has you questioning God's timing? And maybe even to the point of not trusting him and not trusting his timing any longer. Those situations, those circumstances either lead to building trust with God or eroding trust with God. And when they functionally erode trust in God, it leads to idolatry. It leads to going and making gods to get what you want. Not long before his death, Henry Nouwen wrote a book called Sabbatical Journeys. And in this book, he describes a conversation he had with two of his friends who were trapeze artists. And they were called the Flying Rudellas. And in this conversation, they said to, to Nowen, they said, you know, there's the flyer and there's the catcher. The flyer's the one that lets go of the bar and falls and the catcher's the one that, that catches. And they said, there's a moment as this trapeze artist flies high above the crowd, there's a moment at which the flyer lets go, arches his back and stays as still as possible as he flies through the air, waiting for the strong hands of the catcher to catch him. And then his friends said something really profound to him. They said, the flyer must never try to catch the catcher. They have to wait in absolute trust. You know, now imagine if you're one of those trapeze artists, you're the flyer and you let go and you arch your back and you're just, you're still as can be flying through the air. The longer you fall, without being caught, the greater the temptation will be to grasp for the catcher, to try to catch the catcher. And that's how idolatry works, that when we're in a situation and we're in a circumstance that we don't wanna be in, that we want rescued out of, when the rescue doesn't come and the fulfillment doesn't come, we begin to grasp for things, for people, to rescue us, to save us, to satisfy us. And that turn is what starts to bring us into idolatry, which leads us to the second question. What exactly is idolatry? God's people say to Aaron, make us gods. How does Aaron make gods? And what does this tell us or how does this define idolatry for us? First, as we're gonna see in verse four, idolatry is looking to someone or something for satisfaction and fulfillment that only God can provide. Verse four, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, 
who you brought, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. In the wilderness, with the delay, they begin to look to other gods and to create other gods to lead them, to rescue them. They even take it a step further and they say, after the golden calf is made, these are your gods that actually brought you out of Egypt. Now you say, I don't get it. Why would you make a golden calf and then worship it? We're Westerners, we're modern Westerners. And we go, this doesn't make sense. In the ancient world, here being one of these examples, when they were worshiping the golden calf, they weren't actually worshiping that statue. They weren't worshiping the golden calf. The golden calf was just the means to the God that they believed could satisfy them or could fulfill them or could rescue them. You say, well, I, don't, I still don't get it. How does a golden calf represent a God? Why wasn't it a silver squirrel? I mean, what's the significance of the golden calf? Well, when they were back in Egypt, many of the gods in Egypt, a number of them, were represented by bulls and calves and cows. In fact, probably the most prominent god in Egypt that, that they believed, the Egyptians believed, was the creator god, was represented by a bull. It was represented by a bull. And so... The, the golden calf was just access to the God whom they were worshiping that they hoped would bring them satisfaction and fulfillment. You say, well, what's the equivalent today? What's the golden calf and false God equivalent today? Well, let's take the, the God of pleasure. So some sort of pain has come into your life. You're experiencing some sort of pain and you would look to, or you might look to the God of pleasure to numb that pain, to get rid of that pain. Well, what's the means to that God of pleasure that you've fabricated or created? What's the golden calf that gets you access to the God of pleasure? Could be the bottle of alcohol could be the golf course, could be the uh, exclusive resort. Right? Those may be the golden calves that get you access to this God of pleasure that you're wanting to numb your pain, right? Or take the, the God of approval. So you find in your life that you're, you're lacking self-esteem. Maybe it's a season of deep insecurity. So you're going to fabricate, but look to this God of approval to build your self-esteem, to build your security. Well, what's the golden calf that gets you access to that God of approval? Could be your mother. Could be your father. Could be the boss at work. Could be a friend. Right? They serve as golden calves that get you access to that God. So idolatry is looking to someone or something for the satisfaction and fulfillment that only God can provide. But second, idolatry is something good from God that is used to seek satisfaction and fulfillment outside of him. Look at verse two. So Aaron said to them, 
Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. What did Aaron use to build the golden calf? It was the gold jewelry of the people. Well, where did the people get their gold jewelry from? It was plunder from Egypt. It was a gracious gift of God to them coming out of their redemption experience out of Egypt. The gold wasn't the problem. The gold was a precious gift from God to them. The problem was how they used it. So how does it work? How does that work with our sin and idolatry today? Well, let's go back to the God of pleasure that you might seek to numb your pain. And let's look at those golden calves that would give you access to the God of pleasure. The bottle of wine, the golf course, the resort for vacation. Those are all good gifts from God. Those are good gifts from God. They're not evil in and of themselves. But when they are used to seek fulfillment and satisfaction outside of God, then they become golden calves and they become destructive. They become destructive. They become golden calves. Now, why is this important to understand? Because if you don't understand this, you'll demonize the wrong things. You'll call wine evil. You'll call the golf course evil. You'll call the resort evil. You'll begin to identify those things that you have turned into golden calves, call them evil, and then the only approach to overcoming idolatry at that point is just to remove yourself and isolate yourself and escape from the world. Well, here's the problem. If those are good gifts from God and they're not evil in and of themselves, the evil is really in your heart. And you can't escape your heart. You can run as far as you want, but your heart doesn't leave you. And so if you're gonna have the right solution to overcoming idolatry, you need the right definition of it. And it's important to understand that idolatry is something good from God that is used to find fulfillment outside of him. And that's when it becomes idolatrous. Third, idolatry is usually not an outright denial of God. Look at verses five to six. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it and Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Now, in, in, in your Bibles, in the scripture, Lord is in all capital letters. That means this is Yahweh. This is the personal covenant name of God. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They didn't deny God outright. They just took these other gods, the golden calf, and set it on the same shelf with God. And even here, they began to put God's name on it. You can't put God's name on something and assume that that just makes it right. Or another way to say it is you can't put God on your letterhead and then just expect that everything you're gonna do is gonna be blessed by him. Let me, let me give you an example of this. Consider political idolatry. And a political idolatry would just be turning to a president or a political party to fix our country, 
to make things right. That's political idolatry. And oftentimes what happens is when we turn from God to a political idol, whether it's a person, a president, or a leader, or a political party, what happens is God's name oftentimes can get put on top of those idols. Or those idols are just put up on the same shelf with God. Or sometimes those political idols are put on the shelf above God. And there's the expectation that God is going to answer to those idols or to those false gods. But what happens is it's not an outright denial of God, right? It's this kind of dual worship that goes on. So idolatry is looking to someone or something for fulfillment that only God can provide. Idolatry is something good from God that gets used to find fulfillment outside of him. And idolatry is oftentimes, most of the time, not an outright denial of God. So that brings us to the last question then. How do you overcome idolatry? The short answer is you can't, at least not on your own. I should add another question in here. What is the result of idolatry? Look at verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. Ultimately, the result of idolatry is death. But what's really important to see here is that the scene, starting in verse 7, and certainly here in verse 9, the scene has shifted from the base of the mountain where there's the Aaron and the people, to the top of the mountain with Moses and God. Overcoming idolatry did not start at the base of the mountain with the people. Overcoming idolatry started at the top of the mountain between Moses and between God. God tells Moses, Moses, go down. These people have corrupted themselves. Go down, Moses. And then look at what God says to Moses in verse 10. He says, leave me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them. Now, how are we to understand this? This is actually a difficult verse. In fact, this section is a difficult section of Scripture. It's not communicating that God is a petulant God. That's how it can read on the surface, that God is hot-tempered, and that he almost is acting like a sulking child. Okay, that's not what's happening here, right? God is actually highlighting, in this interchange with Moses, he's highlighting the, the need for mediation, the need for someone to intercede. He's already told Moses to go down, to intercede for the people, God doesn't ultimately want to be left alone, right? If he's left alone and there's no intercession, then that means that the people will be destroyed by his just wrath. God doesn't want to be left alone. God is, God is motivating, pushing Moses to intercede for the people. Because as long as Moses is persistently and consistently interceding, then God's wrath will not destroy them. And so we see right here that Moses, he's not changing God's plan. 
He's carrying out God's plan. Psalm 106, verse 23, says this. It speaks of Moses as the chosen one right in the middle of describing this scene. Moses was the chosen one all along. God's plan all along was to save them through Moses the mediator. And God here is, is moving Moses to intercede. This is where it's really important to let Scripture interpret Scripture. That God doesn't change his mind. 1 Samuel 15, 29 says, He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. To get a, me a picture of what's happening here, consider a parent who tries to get his child to stop leaving the toys all over the floor in the house. What might a parent do to keep his child from leaving toys strewn all over the floor in the house? Well, one approach is the parent could say, clean your toys up, because if you don't, I'm throwing them in the trash. Now, unless it's a really, really, really defiant child, for the most part, the child will say, goodness, yes, I'll clean the toys up. Right, was the parent really gonna throw out the toys? The whole point is that the parent is trying to get the child to take responsibility for the toys, to save the toys. And that's what God is doing here with Moses. God is threatening judgment to motivate Moses to move to action, to intercede for the people at the base of the mountain. And that's exactly what Moses does. In verses 11 to 14, verse 11, but Moses implored the Lord his God. Deuteronomy 9.25 says that Moses lay prostrate before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. He prayed to God. He interceded to God for 40 days and 40 nights for the people that were at the base of the mountain. And you notice in verses 11 to 14, as he intercedes, he didn't make excuses for Israel's sin. He didn't try to defend Israel for their sin on the basis of their merits. He didn't get frustrated with God getting angry. He interceded by appealing to God's character. In verses 11, 14, he, he appeals to God's fatherly affection. He appeals to his past investment. He appeals to his public reputation, his merciful compassion, his everlasting covenant. And then at the end of Moses' intercession, we see in verse 14, the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Years later, many years later, God would send another mediator down to his people. God said, Jesus, go down. Go down, Jesus, because the people that I have given you from eternity past have made a mess of things. They have turned from me. They have created gods. They have worshiped false gods. 
And unless, Jesus, you go down and intercede for them, my just wrath will destroy them. I love them too much. Jesus, go down. Go down and intercede for my people. And we read in Romans 8.34 that Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us? from the love of Christ. How do you overcome idolatry? Jesus, Jesus. You don't overcome idolatry by trying to stop making idols. You don't overcome idolatry by trying to stop worshiping the God of pleasure or by trying to stop worshiping the God of approval or the God of security or the God of control. You'll never stop making idols by trying to stop making idols. This is what Thomas Chalmers, he was a pastor in the 1800s. He wrote a book, and the title of the book explains his entire book. The title of the book is The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. His whole point is that it's a new affection that pushes out an old affection. It's a new affection for Jesus Christ. It's the new affection for the life of Christ that pushes out the old affection for sin and idolatry. Pastor Donald Barnhouse, this was after World War I, <clears throat> he visited the, the battlefields of Belgium. And there was one city it was a center of big battles. Early in the war, it was the center of the British retreat. But by the end of the war, it was the city where the Germans retreated. And as they retreated hastily on a road that moves out of the city west, they left all of their artillery, their armor, their... And so he was going to visit this site and he walked down this road to, to look at all the German artillery that had been left behind. And as he did it, there were, there were trees that were basically a canopy over the road. And there were a few leaves that were falling from the trees and one landed on him, kind of got caught in his belt. And he took the leaf out and pressed it between his fingers and it, it disintegrated. It was a dead leaf. Well, here was the problem. that He made this visit in the spring. It wasn't in the autumn. And there was no wind blowing. And so he was scratching his head, trying to figure out what is causing these leaves to drop. And then he realized the, the potent force that was behind it. These were dead leaves that had survived the winds of autumn and the frost of winter. And yet it was springtime, which means the sap was beginning to pulsate up the tree in the winter, the, the, all the, the life being down in the roots was beginning to make its way up the trunk and out the branches and through the twigs. And so what was happening is this, the life in this tree was pushing buds out and it was the new buds coming out that was causing these dead leaves, the deadness from the previous year to fall off. It's the expulsive power of the life of Jesus Christ, the life of the risen Christ in you that pushes out the old sin 
and the old idolatry. You overcome idolatry by Jesus, by his risen, resurrected life in you that is pushing out the old. And that means that the approach to overcoming idolatry is not trying to stop the old, but focusing on the new. Sitting with Christ, spending time with Christ, your affections being stirred for Christ, that is what will overcome the idols and the sin that's dead but still hanging on in your life. Let's pray. Father, we are a people that make idols and false gods all the time. Our hearts are idol factories. And we confess that it's, it's our situation in life, it's our circumstances that are really less than ideal that cause us to functionally doubt you, to functionally not trust you or your timing. And then we turn to these idols and these gods to try to fulfill us and satisfy us. And we confess that they don't satisfy ultimately. But Father, we praise you that overcoming idolatry doesn't start with us. It started with you in the heavens with your son, telling your son Jesus to go down, to go down, to intercede, and to rescue us. And so Father, would you fill us with the new life of Christ? Would you fill us by your spirit with the resurrected Christ that would, that would push out the old, that would push out these old affections and that the new affection for you, Jesus, would bring us life. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.